invite you to turn your Bible to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, if you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's on page 857, 857. Uh, many of us experience December as uh, basically a blur. Uh, we, uh, we, our, our days and our weeks are filled with activities and events. We rush from, from one thing uh, to the next. Uh, time itself seems to be sped up. And then all of a sudden, we are hours away from Christmas Day. We're hours away from Christmas Day without much reflection much real reflection on Jesus at all. Uh, We may know about Jesus. Uh, We may know about the birth of Jesus. But it does our hearts good to slow down, to remember, to consider, to rehearse again the story of Christmas That's actually what the season of Advent is about. These four Sundays leading up to Christmas is about that. It's about anticipating or remembering the coming of Jesus. And though the Christmas story is familiar to many of you, I want to invite you to be careful to not quickly pass over what we think we know in the Bible. Uh, The objective of the Bible and of our time this morning is not only biblical knowledge. You may not walk out of here with any new biblical knowledge. Uh, The the objective of our Bible reading, the objective of our gathering together this morning is worship. That's the goal. The goal is that, that, that God receives the worth that he deserves. That our hearts are made glad by the truths of God. And so may God help us today to worship him. For the last three Sundays, we have been considering what the gospel writers have to say about the coming of Jesus. We started in the book of Matthew, and we learned that Matthew was writing to Jews. And he emphasized that Jesus was the long-awaited king. His book is is, um, emphasizing that fact about Jesus. In Mark's gospel, uh, Mark directed his writing to non-Jews, and he presented Jesus as God's son, who was the suffering servant who would come to save. Last week in the gospel of John, we learned that John wrote to the world. He wrote to Jews and to Gentiles, And what John was doing was unveiling for us that this Jesus was God. He was the eternal God. God in flesh. That God himself had become man. And today we move to the gospel of Luke. Luke was a Gentile. And he is writing to other Gentiles. And he is announcing Jesus as Savior. And this announcement is recorded in Luke chapter 2. You heard those verses already read in verses 8 and following. We'll get there in just a moment. But in verses 1 through 7, we actually read a description of the birth of Jesus. Uh, We're not going to take time to read that this morning. but, But there, the birth of Jesus is recorded. It is told to us that it happened. And then in verses 
8 through 14, the birth is then announced first to the shepherds. Look at verse 8 and 9 again with me. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. Now Mark sets the scene up here for us with shepherds. And the shepherds, we remember, are doing their job. They're out with their sheep. They're in the field. And it is nighttime. And on this particular night, we could say, all heaven breaks loose. Out in the field. Some of you got what I did right there. Thank you. <clears throat> a joke's not very good if I have to explain it. So you've you got to help me out here. Come on. All right. So it's nighttime. They're in the field. And we remember what? The angel appears. The angel, an angel of the Lord appears. And as you read the Bible, this is not the only time that an angel has appeared. You, you know that. Even in the story uh, about Jesus, there were other angels involved um, in recording or in announcing to Mary and to Joseph what was going, going to happen. But to say that it was common for angels to appear would, would not be an accurate statement. That would be an over, overemphasis or an, an overstatement um, of this experience. This was not a, an ordinary experience for an, for an angel to show up. So we can rightly understand that these men would have been a, a, afraid, right? They were filled with great fear, verse 9 tells us. They, they, of course, they would be alarmed or they would be terrified, or the, or the old King James says, sore afraid. Uh, this is the word here, fear, that where we get our word phobia, right? Uh, this is a, a, a frightening, a, a ter they're terrified at, at what is, they're experiencing. Uh, we're not sure, uh, I'm not sure what your, your fears are, but, but I'm pretty sure some of you love camping, which I think camping is, I've said this before, but I think camping is um, a curse. Um, if you remember, as you read your Bible, um, for 40 years, people wandered around in, in the wilderness. Um, so I don't really get why we want to go backwards on this thing. Um, uh, and as Jim Gaffigan says, if the outdoors are so great, why are the insects trying to get into my house? <clears throat> so, so, so there's that. Um, nevertheless, if you, if you do camp, um, I, you can be assured that as you were camping, if, if an angel were to appear in the sky and start talking to you, you, you would be alarmed, right? You, you would be frightened. You would be sore afraid, as we see here in Luke chapter, Luke chapter 2. It seems like a, a reasonable response, that, that being visited by an angel would, would cause fear. But the fear wasn't only about the angel. That's not all that the verse says. The verse doesn't just say that an angel showed up and they were afraid. That that would be a misreading of the texts. Look at it again. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Don't miss that. Not just an angel showing up. It's the glory of the Lord that appeared around them. What, what are we talking about? We're talking about this splendor or this brightness. This was the manifestation of the presence of God. The presence of God showed up. And of course it's going to be different. Now we see this glory of the Lord throughout the Bible. 
We see the glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai with Moses. We see the glory of the Lord at the tabernacle with Moses. We see the glory of God with Solomon in the, temp- in the temple. We see the glory of God in when Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees this vision of the throne room of God. Ezekiel chapter 1 describes this, this idea of the, the, the presence or the manifested presence of God, the glory of the Lord shining around them. Don't miss that. This isn't just an angel showing up. It's the presence of God showing up. And when God shows up, no one could be the same, right? And certainly the shepherds weren't either. Heaven had come to earth and the shepherds were rightly alarmed. When the spiritual world invades the material world, we're not very comfortable with that, right? And for good reason, which leads to fear, If the presence of the angel and the glory of the Lord was not enough, then the angel starts talking and makes an announcement. Look at it in verse 10. And the angel of the Lord said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. First thing he says is, Fear not. Fear not. Uh, the, The angel understood. That the response of of seeing an angel and the glory of the Lord shining around would would lead to fear. And so the the response to their fear was to tell them to not fear. Which is the same response that Zechariah gets in Luke chapter 1. That Mary gets in Luke chapter 1. That Joseph gets in Matthew chapter 1. It's the same answer that Jesus gives in the Gospels in places like Matthew 10, Matthew 14, Matthew 28, Luke 5, Luke 6 excuse me, Luke 5, Luke 12, John 6, Mark 5, and Mark 6. Fear not. But the angel, again, didn't just say, don't fear, but he went on to tell them why they don't have to fear. For, because, look, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You don't have to be afraid, not because I'm not an angel, not because the glory of the Lord isn't here. All those things should lead us to, to alarm, But I got good news. I got good news that leads to great joy that will be for all the people. Now that word good news, or that, there's two words here for us, one word in the original, is the word for gospel. It's the word where we get our word evangel, evangel, um, evangel, excuse me. When we think about evangelism, it's sharing the good news. It's an announcement. It's a declaration. Not a suggestion here. He's bringing good news. He's bringing an announcement. And what is it? It's the gospel. One writer notes that the gospel means the inbreaking of God's kingly rule in the advent of his salvation and vindication. I bring you the good news. I bring you the gospel. I bring you the news that, that God is breaking into this world, that salvation has come. That vindication of God has come. The good news is the message of not only the birth of Jesus, but of the salvation through Jesus. This was good news, and it was of great joy. Great joy, or or great gladness, or great delight, or great cheerfulness. Give me a second here. Great joy. joy. Joy can get, um, joy can be confusing. That term can be confusing. What, what do we mean when we say joy? 
Uh, joy is not merely an emotion. And it is not simply a feeling of happiness. It's not wrong to say joy and happiness are similar, but they are not the exact same either. It, joy, though, for, for some, is based on a temporal feeling. Uh, it's based on um, favorable circumstances. And, and if it is, and if that's where we hold our joy, then we're going to be all over the place, right? We're going to be up and down emotionally from moment to moment, from day to day. If our joy is based on something that changes, uh, Tim Keller explains that this is a, a, what's called a, a counterfeit to true joy. He explains it like this. It's the elevation, let me, let me try that again. It's the elation that comes with blessings, not the blesser. This is the counterfeit joy. It involves mood swings based on circumstances. That's counterfeit joy. And some of you know what that's like. To have the mood swings. That you're, you're high one moment and you're really low the next. That's not the joy that the Bible's talking about. And here when the angels say, I have good news of great joy. This is the news that leads to great joy. This is the kind of news that gives you confidence. This is the kind of news that gives you stability. One commentator says that it is a quality that's joy. Not simply an emotion. It's grounded upon God himself and indeed derived from him. It characterizes the Christian's life on earth and also anticipates the joy of being with Christ forever in the kingdom of heaven. Good news of great joy not only is taking pleasure in the current circumstance or not, but it has its eyes not only on the blessing, but the blesser. Not only on the moment, but the future. The kingdom of God. And this joy clearly then is connected to God. Great news, good news of great joy. Not only for the shepherds, what's the rest of the verse say? But for all the people. Now in an immediate, in an immediate um, context, what, what seems to be understood here is that the angel is saying it's not only for the Israelites, it's for all the people. It, Gentiles are included too, which tells us that, that Jesus came not only for the Jews. That's good news if you're not a Jew. And most of you are not Jews, I don't think. So that's really good news for us. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So that means you and I can be in all the people. Yes, this is good news. This leads to great joy. Why? Because the gospel now has been opened to you and me. The birth of Jesus tells us that salvation is available through Christ to those who would believe, not just those who are Jews or those who are Israelites. Jesus came not only for the Jews, but he came to seek and to save those who were lost. And if you hear and believe the good news, then it's good news for you. It's not good news for everyone though, is it? We'll come back to that. Verse 11 goes on and tells us something more about this good news and the reason for great joy. For 
verse 11, for because, or for or because, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now this is, this is the prophecy being fulfilled, isn't it? This is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto you, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The long-awaited promise had been fulfilled. Jesus had come. Messiah had come. He had come and he was born this day. He was born this day. He was born at the right time. When God decided it was the right time, that's when Jesus was born. Galatians chapter 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. At the right time, this day, the angel says, Jesus was born. Not only was he born at the right time, but he was born in the right place. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. What city is that? Bethlehem. The prophet Micah had announced this prophecy hundreds of years before. That Jesus would be born, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now that might not seem important to you. Who cares where Jesus was born? Like we just got done talking about salvation. We just got done talking about the kingdom of heaven. We just got done talking that, that the gospel is, is open to you and me. Like who cares where he was born? It, the fact that he's born is all that matters, right? Well, no, it's not all that matters. In fact, the Bible has a lot of details and the details are important. So when he tells us that they, he was born this day in the city of David, it's telling to us that the prophecies are being fulfilled through this one. That the things that were said of him, this is the one. You're wondering who it is. Who's the Messiah? How do we know who the Messiah is? Who's fulfilling the prophecies? Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies. And one of those is that he would be born in Bethlehem. They might say, so who, okay, he's born in Bethlehem. But they, he wasn't, his parents weren't living in Bethlehem. You remember the story. They weren't in Bethlehem. They were in Nazareth. So they weren't in the right place. But he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. How did he get to Bethlehem? Why did he go to Bethlehem? What, 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 what would lead a man and a pregnant wife to journey to another town when she was that close to having a baby? What would cause them to go? Well, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 tell us what, what the cause was. The cause was that Caesar Augustus decided that the whole world should be registered. There should be a census taken. I want to know where everyone's from. I want to know how many people are out there. I want to know this. So everyone has to return to their hometowns. So Joseph has to go back to where he was from. And this is not a coincidence. John Piper explains, Have you ever thought what an amazing thing it is that God ordained before that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? And he so ordained things that when the time came, the Messiah's mother and legal father were living not in Bethlehem, but in Nazareth. And that in order to fulfill the word and bring two unheard of, insignificant, little people to Bethlehem that first Christmas, God put in the heart of Caesar Augustus that all the Roman world should be registered, each to his own town. A decree for the whole world 
in order to move two people 70 miles. He's a big God for little people, end quote. So when we read that he was born in the city of David, we, 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 we just run right past it. No, not only is he fulfilling scripture, but God is sovereignly working events, world events, in order to fulfill his plan for two seemingly insignificant people. You might feel insignificant. You might feel like a little person, like your life doesn't matter. And if God cares about these lives, and he does, he cares about your life. The Bible seems abundantly clear that he cares for us and that he orchestrates history. He orchestrates the events of our lives in order to fulfill his good purposes. Well, the angels continue and they identify this one who has been born in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. One pastor calls this the 12 words of Christmas. If you look at verse 11 and you start counting, you're going to find out that there's more than 12 words in there. And you might say, what translation is he reading from? That must be some of those fancy new translations. Actually, no, it's actually a really old, it's not a translation at all. It's the original language. In the original language, there's, there's 12 words here in verse 11, the 12 words of Christmas. And that contains these three titles for Jesus, Savior, Christ, and Lord. Jesus is Savior, Christ, and Lord. And this is the only time in, in, in the Bible where these three titles are used together to refer to Jesus. And the first one is Savior. One writer notes, the text does not say he will be a Savior, but born this day a Savior. It's not that Jesus would be a Savior. Yes, he would do his work of saving on the cross, but he was a Savior. He, he's the Savior now. He was the Savior when he was born. The title, Savior, is used in other places, actually used in the Old Testament referring to God himself, and it was used in, in, in Rome for the, for the emperor. They, they, they referred to the emperor as the Savior. So uh, Christians took this title in the New Testament and applied it to Jesus. We see it in the book of Acts in chapter 5 and chapter 13, for, for instance. Uh, the good news here is that a Savior, a rescuer, a deliverer had come, right? This is good news of great joy, we're told. But before it's good news, there's actually bad news here. And why is there bad news? Because the only reason you would need a savior is if you needed saving. The only reason it would be good news to know that a deliverer, deliverer had come is if you needed to be delivered. If you were in need and you were incapable of meeting that need, if you were unable to save yourself, that's the only reason why it would be good news that a savior had come. See, the bad news of the gospel is, is not just that we're needy, but even more that we are sinners. We're unrighteous before God. We are spiritually dead. We're unable to save ourselves. And therefore, we are at odds with God, hopelessly separated from God and under the wrath of God. That's pretty bad news. Aren't you glad you came today? It's bad news. There's bad news before there's good news. 
That's always the case, and it's the case with the gospel. We can look at Ephesians chapter 2 or Romans chapter 3 to see these things, to recognize that we are sinners, that by our nature we are sinners. And you can blame Adam all we want, but the reality is that as, as a human, our condition, our nature is that we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And what we need is a savior from our sins. We need a divine redeemer to rescue us from the wrath of God brought upon us by the curse. Genesis chapter 3. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. That God actually sent Jesus to be the savior. The savior you needed, he actually came. He actually came. The rescue you need, the rescuer's here. The salvation you need, the Savior's here. You and I have a lot of needs, and they're not always met the way we want. But what if I could tell you the greatest need that you have in your life has already been met? He's already here. He already did it. It's as good as done. Our response then is to believe it. The Savior has come. The Savior has come. God sent Jesus as a Savior. Why do you send him as a Savior? Because our greatest need was not a, a political leader. It wasn't a political leader to take over Rome and make Christianity the, the, the ruling religion. It wasn't a soldier to overturn the government and take things by force. Rather, it was a Savior who would die in our place to redeem us, to buy us back from our sin. This, this is the reason for great joy. Good news of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We've talked about Christ, this title already, and it is a title. It's not Jesus' middle name. It's a title. It's a Greek word for Messiah or the anointed one. And by applying this title to Jesus, what the angel is, is saying is he's identifying this baby, again, with the promises of the Old Testament. This one who had been promised, this anointed, chosen Messiah of the Old Testament, is fulfilled in this baby, this Jesus. Well, not only is Jesus the Savior and the Christ, but thirdly, he is Lord. Lord is another term, another title a title given to Yahweh in the Old Testament as Savior was as well. So when used here in reference to Jesus, it's saying that Jesus is God. To call Jesus Lord is to call him God, is to call him king, is to call him sovereign, is to call him ruler, Savior, Christ, and King, Lord. So then if Jesus is Lord, if he rules then we must submit. That's what that means. If Jesus is king, that means we're not. And so our response is to submit to King Jesus. Christmas is the arrival of the king. It's the arrival of the savior. It's the arrival of this one who's come for us. And our response is not just tell him what to do or to tell him what we're gonna believe and what we're not gonna believe or tell him what we're gonna accept and what we're not gonna accept or tell him what kind of life I wanna live so I can live my best life now. No, our responsibility is to submit to him. Is to bow our knee to him. 
In Matthew chapter two, we see the wise men come to Jesus. Here, here are wise, wise men. They're, they're, they they might have been kings, but they certainly were influential people. And they come to, to this king of the Jews, and what do they do? They bow to him. They recognize him as a king. It's a child. They recognized him as king. It took the proper posture. The great question is, have we taken the same posture? Our refusal to bow to him is rebellion against the king of the world. And rebellion, uh, unbelief, places us under the wrath of God. The announcement of Jesus as Lord is the declaration of God's rule that he is king and that he reigns. And we must therefore confess with our mouth that he is Lord. That's what Romans chapter 10 verse 9 tells us. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Jesus must be both Lord and Savior. He does not just rule, but he saves. Greg Gilbert writes, the Lord had acted on behalf of his people to save them from God's wrath against their sin. Christmas tells us that God has acted, that God has sent the Savior to save us from our sins. This is good news of great joy. The coming of Jesus, the glory of the Lord, exposes who we are, exposes that we're a sinner, that we need help. But the joy of Christmas is that the Savior actually came to save us. Look at verse 12, a validation. For, unto, for this will be the sign. This will be a sign for you that you will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then we read on to verse 16, and that's exactly what the shepherds find. The baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. There is great joy in this good news because the long-awaited Messiah, God himself, has come to earth to save us from our sins. And yet, once again, it's only good news if you believe it. It can't be good news if you don't believe it. Because only those who believe it recognize that they are a sinner and recognize Jesus as their savior. If we disregard this news, it cannot be good for us at all. Writer Paul Tripp says, the Christmas story is not intended to teach you a bunch of moral lessons that require no history to be helpful. It's a story that is rooted in real history, real acts of God that are intended to provide you and me the one thing we desperately need, moral rescue. The Christmas story is about a God of glorious grace on the march, invading human history, with his grace of redemption. What was the cost of that grace? Well, the grace was the death of his son. What the birth of Jesus tells us is that in love, both the father and the son were willing to pay the cost. And until we understand the cost of that grace, the grace that saves, we will not respond in joyful obedience to this king. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He left his, his home. He left his throne, not only to live, not only just to tell us about salvation, but to actually save. All, all other world religions tell us about how you can get somewhere. Heaven, 
nirvana, whatever, how you get there. Jesus came not to tell us how to get there. He came to be the way to get there. It's very, very different. No other religion could claim such a thing. Jesus is the Savior. He is the Christ, and he is the Lord. And so I ask you, Jesus came for you. Will you come to him? Jesus came for you to save. Will you come to him in repentance and faith? Will you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today? What, what a great day to come to Jesus. What a great day to recognize that this one who, who the world stops, and whether they understand it or not, and they take a day to remember something. Some of them don't know what they remember, remembering. Nevertheless, a day is dedicated to the birth of Jesus. Why? Because he changed everything. Literally everything. We know that the very calendar was changed by Jesus, right? Jesus came and everything changed. If you have then responded already, if you've already come to Jesus then the invitation for you to is to glorify God in obedience. Glorify the God who came for you with a life of obedience. What did the shepherds do after they saw Jesus? They went out praising and glorifying God. They went out telling other people what they saw and what they heard. They responded to this Jesus. How will you respond to this Jesus this morning? It's great to celebrate. It's great to gather your family around. It's great to sing carols. It's great to give gifts. All of those things are great. But if those things do not point you to the greatest gift, if they do not point you to the, the giver of all and every good and perfect gift, then you're missing the point entirely. And there are millions of people who miss the point. Don't miss the point. The point of this holiday is to remind us of God's great love for us. That even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning for those who are with us who may never have heard of Jesus, never have come to Jesus in repentance and faith, even as they sit here this morning. I pray that they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord that he is king, he is God, he is the savior they need. They would repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ, in Christ alone. We're so thankful for Jesus today. We're so thankful for the hope that he brings, the joy that he brings, the love that he has given. And may we respond today in our life by glorifying and praising you, by living in obedience to your word, May you receive the glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our God.